the life story. I got here through airplanes and war and science fiction. I was a little kid in the 60s, remember? You had Fireball XL5 on Saturday morning TV and Star Trek in prime time, and I devoured Wells and Clark and Heinlein and all those other guys. And there was space, of course. I was 17 when the shuttle first flew. Armstrong riding atop Constitution. John Young commanding the orbiter. Fred Hayes the booster plane. So there was all that going on. And meanwhile, my daddy first took me flying when I was three. So he said, I don't remember that far back. I grew up knowing he'd been an aviator, though. Flew in Korea. And his father had flown in the Second World War. Went up in a P-51 Mustang against German jet planes. <laughs> Hell of a thing. As a veteran, too. So, 18 years old, I made my first approach to NASA. I soon learned it was a long road ahead. Go to college, they said. My mother helped me find the right courses at Columbia U, and, and then I got a job with Sperry Engineering, who had a lot of contacts with the space program. I was building a career. A profile. Then in the early 80s, they announced the schedule for the Project Ares Mars mission, and I got all fired up again. Impatient, I guess. I tried NASA again. Got nowhere. So I took a gamble and went back to college. Well, four of the first dozen moonwalkers had been to MIT. I went to Princeton. This was around 1982 because I knew O'Neill was teaching there. The Space Colonies guy, the High Frontier. Wow, he opened up my eyes to what you could do in space, once it became economical to get there in the first place. We must have watched Silent Running like 50 times. I tried again for NASA, bounced again. Turned out they wanted pilots more than dreamers at that stage. So... I would have made my father and grandfather proud. I joined the USAF. Served my time at the Air Force Academy at Colorado Springs. Now, this was around 1984. I was 24 years old. Turned out I was a half-decent flyer. You became a military pilot. Eventually served in the Second Gulf War. But by then I was married to Emma. Emma Stoney. Yeah. Emma Stoney. Always kept her own name and damn right. <laughs> she wasn't your typical service wife of the time and wouldn't put up with the bum deal they got back then. Low pay, moving the whole time, your husband overseas while you raised the kids in lousy military base housing. We had grown up together, you know? Though she was ten years younger than me. We had met up again at a family wedding, her sister's. And after Michael was born... She turned out to be the first to join NASA. Uh, before me, I mean. She became a mission specialist. Yeah. She always blamed me for inspiring her. I was that bit older. But I guess her strategy was smarter than mine. She went to college and took geology and climatology and planetary studies, not flying and engineering. NASA's full of pilots and engineers, but it turned out to be short of people who could understand planets and moons. All of which put her in prime position when the Phobos flight came up. 
A flight plan to investigate the orbital anomalies. Yeah. Phobos' moon of Mars was acting very strangely. It was apparently being dragged down towards the planet, like Skylab, like a low-altitude space station. But Mars's air was too thin for that. Phobos should have been too massive. It was solid all the way through. There'd been strange, contradictory observations for decades, and even more contradictory theories. Then, in the late 80s, they sent a space probe that proved the orbital decay was real, and Carl Sagan and other people started arguing for a dedicated crewed mission. And Emma got a seat, and <laughs> she deserved it by damn. But by the time Emma left for Phobos, you had become better known for your campaigns for private mining missions to the asteroids. My campaigns? That's what I did, buddy. I even established a startup, Bootstrap Inc. I guess I had a kind of revelation about how we should be thinking about space. <laughs>